It's Thursday, May 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. At least 43 states are beginning to reopen their economies, and new modeling is projecting that there could be 134,000 coronavirus-related deaths by August. The models coming from the University of Washington took into account rising testing, contact tracing, and rising temperatures, but said that the premature relaxation of social distancing would likely cause more cases of COVID-19 and more deaths. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Next, researchers at three universities have received federal research grants to create a contact tracing mobile app for students that could track a person's real-time location and symptoms, and it would calculate a type of social credit score that determines your COVID-19 risk and also a risk score for location. Tammy Abdullah, senior reporter at .LA, joins us for how some universities hope to keep students safe. Finally, since coronavirus has shut everything down and there's no playbook for running a completely digital political campaign, candidates have had to operate a little more like influencers and hope to go viral. Zoom and Instagram live streams are now for policy discussions. Twitter and Facebook are the new rally stages to build a following. McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge, joins us for how campaigns have had to adapt. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Now it's nearly 135,000, which is much higher than the White House has been saying in recent days. And like you said, the primary reason they gave for this update is that states are moving rapidly to reopen, even though they're not seeing even a few days decline in the number of cases. Joining us now is Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Alice. Sure. Thank you. I wanted to talk about models, models that we use to predict what's going to be happening with the coronavirus pandemic. They're all over the place for the most part. And a model is only as good as the factors that you're putting into it. And, uh, you know, some people have said this model is nothing. This model is more accurate. Like I said, it all depends into the key factors that you're putting in there. But right now, a key model for the coronavirus pandemic that is favored by the White House just nearly doubled its prediction earlier this week about how many people are going to die by the virus by August. One of the primary reasons for why the numbers have changed is because states are starting to reopen and they say that states are reopening too soon. Alice, tell us a little bit about this model. This model out of the University of Washington has been something the White House has referenced for months. And this is actually the fourth time that model has updated. Like you said, Every time there are developments across the country, there's new information. States are making different decisions. You need to update the model to have an accurate prediction. But this is a huge difference. The model just a few weeks ago predicted about 72,000 people dying by August. Now it's nearly 135,000, which is much higher than the White House has been saying in recent days. And like you said, the primary reason they gave for this update is that states are moving rapidly to reopen even though they're not seeing even a few days decline in the number of cases. So the White House laid out this criteria for when states should reopen, but states that have not met that criteria are moving forward anyway, sometimes with active encouragement from the Trump administration. Yeah, and we're talking about the factors that you put into the modeling to get whatever the prediction is going to be. In this model specifically, now they're factoring in data from four different cell phone providers 
And they're showing that Americans are starting to go out in public more. And there could be a range of things. Like you said, states are starting to relax some of those restrictions. People are getting frustrated and don't want to be home anymore. But it's showing that people are out and about a lot more now. Even state leaders and some in the Trump administration are openly acknowledging that as states reopen, people are going to move around more. They're going to come in contact with more people and the virus is going to spread. Now, the reason the White House and the CDC set out guidelines for states reopening is that they were saying if you bring down transmission to a reasonable level, a level that your public health department can monitor and suppress and trace, then it's safer to take these steps to relax restrictions. But states that have not done those things first are still moving forward. Just uh, by contrast, this is not this uh, model here, but there's another model. This one is from the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania. They predicted if all states were to open right now, that we'd have 350,000 deaths before July. It all depends on the factors that you're putting into it. But this specific one that we're talking about out of the University of Washington, this is been a key one for the White House. It's been far more optimistic in its numbers. And one of the things that they also factor in too is the weather. They were factoring in warmer weather that's coming up. And that's why earlier on they were saying, you know, that there would be less deaths as well. I thought it was really interesting. The scientists at the University of Washington did a press call for reporters to explain their model update. And they were saying, look, we really don't know how the warmer weather is going to impact the virus and impact how quickly it spreads in the population. We are making an assumption that, like the flu, it will get better when the weather gets warmer, when we move out of the winter and early spring, but we don't know for sure. And they said that it will be several more weeks or even months until we have a really accurate sense of that. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important point to make. These are all assumptions. They're all estimations. And that's why we hear new models and it's tough to really live by them. But the numbers are starting to pan out that way a little bit. This latest one says there would be 134,000 deaths. I mean, we're already at over 70,000 deaths in the United States. And the trajectory just seems to be going there. Some of what's going on is they're saying, you know, some of the harder hit areas like Louisiana, New York City, they're starting to see drops in cases and deaths. But right now, there's starting to be an increase in rural areas. So I'm sure the modeling will even change after that. Another factor that makes it difficult is that deaths take the longest to see out of any of these. So you have a state reopen. It'll take a few weeks to even see cases start to surge. After that, you'll see hospitalizations. And long after that, you'll see deaths. So it's hard with the lag time on these different factors and our ability to monitor it. How has the White House been responding as these new numbers come out? I know everybody was making the deal saying the President Trump is saying, oh, we're going to have more deaths and everything now. But how have they been responding as these models come out? They've been a bit more blunt than they have before that states' decisions to reopen will increase the rate of transmission and therefore will increase the number of deaths. But they argue that it is worth it because the alternative of remaining in a lockdown scenario has severe problems of its own, including potential economic problems and health problems. And so they say that, look, what we've done so far has brought it down to a more manageable level than if we did nothing, which is just arguably true, but obviously doesn't capture the entire picture. And they say, look, we've done so well, and now we've learned more about the virus so that if there are future surges and outbreaks, we know how to respond to them. 
people working in public health on the ground warn that we still don't have adequate testing to even know where these outbreaks might rise. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. So the idea that they've sort of been working on is creating this sort of risk score that you get based on the various locations you travel to. And those locations would be gathered via your phone. You'd have to turn on location tracking. Joining us now is Tammy Abdullah, senior reporter at Dot LA. Thanks for joining us, Tammy. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Wanted to talk about contact tracing and this kind of notion of a social credit score. You know, everybody's been saying contact tracing is one of those key elements that states are going to need to reopen their economies and also track the spread of the virus so that we don't fall into this thing where we have hot spots again and we overload the healthcare system. And right now, research at the University of Southern California, Emory University, and the University of Texas Health Science Center, they've all received a federal research grant to create a mobile app for contact tracing. Tammy, tell us a little bit about this. They're trying to figure out a way to provide people with a sense of the risk that they face of getting COVID-19 and of the areas that they're visiting giving them COVID-19. So the idea that they've sort of been working on is creating this sort of risk score that you get based on the various locations you travel to. And those locations would be gathered via your phone. You'd have to turn on location tracking. And doing that, they'd sort of put together a risk score based on all the various places you went. So if you stayed home all day, every day for weeks at a time, your risk score would probably be rather low. But if you're going out and you're delivering for Amazon, your risk score might be rather high. And then they would take all the locations that you'd been to and where people end up gathering at and create an aggregate risk score for those areas. And one of the reasons why this is being done this way through technology is they say that the spread of the virus is moving too fast for manual contact tracing. So the traditional way is somebody would call you on the phone, say, hey, you either tested positive or you might have been in an area or you know somebody that has tested positive and then you go through the whole rounds, you know, you should self-isolate, blah, 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 all that stuff. And they're saying that that's a little too slow for the spread that's going on right now. So they want to do this in a technological way where, as you mentioned, they can create the maps. It can ping you maybe if you're going to an area that could be a potential hotspot. So this is kind of where they're going just to help out. The issue is that a lot of people don't even know they have this, and yet they are contagious for one to two days before they actually develop symptoms. So it's just moving so quickly and relying on human memory to remember everyone you dealt with, met up with, especially if we start reopening society even more in a day or in two days, it's hard to remember who you were in touch with, let alone 14 days. And so the idea is technology can do a lot better job remembering things. And once you start building enough data together and getting these aggregate scores put together of risk and also adding in more testing, then you start seeing, for example, if someone's risk score is between zero and one, so zero, no risk, one, you have it. You can see that once you aggregate for an area, when people start turning into ones, oh, they ended up getting it. Well, the overall risk for everywhere they went to over those 14 days 
goes up and you can see your overall risk go up as well. When are the universities getting started on this and when are they expected to have some type of app ready to go for widespread use? So they started officially working on this per the grant on Friday. So this past Friday, May 1st. And the idea is that they will have this worked through and developed in the hopes of being able to put it forward for their student populations should they be returning to class in August or for the fall semester. So that's sort of the plan that Sayer Shahabi over at USC mentioned to me that they were all sort of discussing. He hopes to have it ready in time for August for USC students specifically. Some of the problems that are associated with this all the time is concerns about privacy and then widespread adoption. There's always these concerns that people are just not going to want to download it and they're not going to want to opt in for the location tracking for fear that they're going to be tracked, for fear that somebody will know where they're at at all times. What have people involved with the grant, what have they said with regards to that? They basically say that, hey, look, you opt into location tracking for convenience all the time. So their sort of argument is that this is a way to ensure society can return back to normal and that the economy can keep running and people also can be aware of the risk that they carry and that they may be exposed to. The flip side is that people who are really concerned about people's privacy and surveillance, like folks at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, are obviously worried about what this actually looks like. Tammy Abdullah, senior reporter at Dot LA. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Now, from the people who I've spoken to, they're trying absolutely everything from trying to hack algorithms on every social media platform to get things to go viral to doing weird things like sitting in their bathtub over Instagram Live and reading (laughs) scary stories to provide some kind of reprieve. Joining us now is McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, McKenna. Hey, glad to be back. Wanted to talk politics for a quick minute during the time of coronavirus. It's increasingly tough for candidates to run during this time of social distancing and really statewide stay-at-home orders. There's no playbook for running a completely digital political campaign right now. And it's just tough, especially for smaller candidates, candidates that don't really have good name recognition to get their name out there. I mean, you got to think about what's going on nationally. Let's say Joe Biden, you'll see him on a CNN or any other news network. He does virtual town halls. He's doing Facebook things. President Trump is on the daily coronavirus task force press conferences. So you're seeing him there. But for candidates that are down ballot and running across the country and and states and congressional districts, it's tough for them to get their name out there. So a lot of times they're having to kind of play the role of an influencer almost. They're trying to go that same route and go viral. McKenna, tell us a little bit about what candidates are having to do now. Before everything happened, these insurgent candidates were relying on being out in the communities in which they're running. That is shaking hands, doing kind of the retail politics basics to get their name out. Now, from the people who I've spoken to, they're trying absolutely everything from trying to hack algorithms on every social media platform to get things to go viral to doing weird things like sitting in their bathtub over Instagram Live and reading (laughs) scary stories to provide some kind of reprieve from everything going on in daily life. From what I can tell, everyone's just doing whatever they can really to get their name out there. 
the unfortunate thing is that sometimes the audience is very small for something like that. While watching somebody in a bathtub read a scary story could sound kind of fun, the audience numbers really aren't there. As you mentioned, if you went out to a community center and met with people, you're just not reaching the same amount of people. So what are they trying to do to game the system here? First of all, it's completely flooding every social media network with content that is A, beneficial to their constituencies, kind of hooking them up with the resources that they need, whether that's meal delivery services or helping guide them through the unemployment system right now. But it's also just kind of doing funny things or something to get your kid away (laughs) to like read a story or engage in some kind of game with someone and providing services that a lot of people need right now through their own campaign apparatuses. And it's not just candidates that have little to no name recognition. There's some sitting congressmen that are also getting into this game. You mentioned Representative Joe Kennedy. He's running against Senator Ed Markey for his Senate seat. And he's also getting into this game, doing things on Facebook, getting a million viewers, chasing that halo effect where he kind of looks like a celebrity to mimic almost like a big rally or something, because you just can't do that with social distancing right now. Joe Kennedy has been doing a lot of interesting things. His communications or digital expert that helps run his stuff used to do things for Beto O'Rourke. And we've seen kind of what Beto O'Rourke has done in the past with live streaming his dentist appointments when he was running for Senate against Ted Cruz. So they're doing some similar things, whether it is talking to Chef Jose Andre, who does a lot of interesting work during times of crisis in this country, but also talking to the Broadway cast of Dear Evan Hansen. And with like kind of a name, like the Kennedy family, it's easier to pull this kind of celebrity endorsement, especially when you already have such a huge following to start out with. These candidates who I spoke to and really tried to focus on, they are launching their Facebook pages last summer, even just a couple months ago. So they haven't had that time to build up that following. So at the same time, what they're doing, which is really interesting, is trying to build that following, but also leveraging it at the same time, because these primary elections and their elections coming up, they're coming very fast. And there's also candidates that are using the pandemic right now to educate their would-be constituents as well. But even that's kind of a tool that they're using to either help them go viral or just really get their name out there more. You mentioned in your article, Kiani Gardner, she's a first-time political candidate in the Democratic primary runoff for Alabama's first district. And she's taken to a whiteboard and doing explainers about coronavirus and different things that people should be knowing. This was something very interesting that I really was excited to talk to Kiani about. So when you are a teen, one of the first things that you do when you're interested in becoming an influencer, which a lot of kids are now, you look at polling and a lot of kids want to be YouTubers now. But when you go to these blogs that kind of outline how to do it, one of the top line pieces of advice is leaning on what you're already good at. And that's what I saw Kiani Gardner doing. She is a PhD cell biologist and she used to be a professor. So when all of this happened, she leaned into what she's good at and decided to become a source of reliable information for her community and posting that over Facebook in videos where she would wipe off all of her district data on whiteboards and then start kind of explaining what the reality is in her district. McKenna Kelly, policy reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in.
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.